Hopefully we'll wake everybody up and fill your life with joy from the scriptures this morning. Um, we're going to be starting, let, let me just t- mention something to you also. Um, uh, you may have noticed here the last few weeks it's getting a little crowded in here, and uh, that's a good thing, and we, we like that. Um, we want to have a lot more of that, uh, but uh, one thing just to just to make you aware of that, because as people do come in, uh, you know, if you have extra room in your row, just kind of scoot to the middle, and you can, then we'll open up some space on the end where they don't have to walk in front of people to get in and get seated. So just a word of encouragement on that. Um, this morning, we're going to start a new series. I've been wanting to do this series for about six months. And I finally got through everything else I was going to do, and now we're up to this. Uh, we're for the next uh, about 13 weeks up through uh, Easter to uh, think about the week after Easter. We're going to be looking at uh, the. We're going to look be looking at the cross. We're going to be looking at Jesus and the crucifixion, and uh, you know Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, because the cross and the message about the cross is at the center of Christianity. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. There is no Christian faith without the cross, because at the cross. We are able to come to God and find forgiveness of our sins, healing from them, and adoption into the family of God. And you may not realize it, but the Bible actually talks about what Jesus is doing on the cross in a wide variety of ways, and I'm going to just highlight 13 of them. Uh, But what this is like, uh, guys, if you are married, you can relate to this. Uh, you, at some point, when you fell in love with this girl and you asked her to marry you, you had to go into a jewelry store. And they lay out for you these rings, and they have these really pretty shiny rocks they put on this ring, right? They take one shiny rock, melt it down, turn it into a little circle, and then they take another shiny rock and stick it on top of that, and you pay two or three months' salary for this thing. Right, but that one shiny rock on the top, you know, the diamond that they put on there, uh, has all these little facets that they cut onto that, onto that little piece of stone. And when you look at the cross, it's like a diamond, and it's got all these little facets, and every one of them, just like a diamond, reveals light through all those tiny little facets. As you look at the cross through all these different facets, you see the cross of Christ in a new light. And we want to shine the light uh, on the cross of Jesus uh, for about the next 13 weeks or so and talk about the most beautiful facets of this jewel at the center of Christianity. And this morning, I'm going to throw a little Latin your way and talk to you about Christus Victor. Uh, which is the fancy theological way of saying that Jesus is the victor. He is the one who conquers. He is the one who is the reigning, conquering Messiah. And before we get into that, you may want to just back up with me and, and just examine for a second why it is that we need a Messiah in the first place. And if you've been here for any length of time at all, you've probably heard me allude to or actually even teach on Genesis 3 multiple times. 
And it's because Genesis 3 is one of the central passages of the Bible. It tells us why the world is so messed up. And if you've ever wondered why the world is all messed up, it's in Genesis 3. It's because humanity, which was created perfect, Genesis 1 and 2, fell into sin in Genesis 3. And the act itself seems pretty innocuous. It's just eating a piece of fruit that God had told them not to eat. We don't know what kind of fruit that it was. We don't know, um, you know whether it was an apple. That's how it's depicted in art all the time. Uh, we don't know what it was. It may have been a fig. I don't know. Uh, but in any case, God said, you can eat freely from all the trees of the garden. But don't eat from the one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'll just tell you, it was not a magic tree. It didn't have fruit that glowed or anything like that. <laughs> okay. But God said, this particular tree, don't eat from the fruit of that. Because in the day that you eat it, you're going to die. And we don't know how long they lived in the garden, Adam and Eve, in their idyllic life of communion with one another and communion with God. But at some point along the way, the serpent enters the scene. And the serpent comes in and he is able to successfully tempt the woman into taking some of the fruit. And Genesis 3, uh, verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And with that act, they fell into sin because they had rebelled against God's explicit command, which was the, the only command that they had in their relationship with God. Enjoy all of this creation, but avoid this one thing. And the one thing God told them not to do, they did. And so they recognized their evil for what it was. And they brought into creation death, which was the penalty for their sin. And the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because now all of a sudden you recognize the difference between good and evil because you have experienced and done evil from the inside. And you see it in distinction to your former life, which was good. And so they hid from God who judged them uh, for their sin and cast them out of the garden but it's also important to remember back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the midst of God's pronouncement of judgment, in the midst of him casting them out, there's this grace note that sounds. What theologians call the proto-evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel, that there is going to be one who's going to be born of a woman who's going to come. And who's going to reverse the curse, who's going to conquer the serpent and put an end to sin and death. And so you're all through history, all down through the pages of Scripture, you're anticipating and looking forward to the coming of this person who's going to conquer sin and the serpent and death. And that is what I want to show you this morning. Christus Victor, Jesus the one who defeated Satan and sin and death. 
And we're going to look at the first passage together, which deals with sin. And this is Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. If you've got your Bibles, uh, find your way to your New Testament. First book in your New Testament is Matthew, uh, fourth chapter, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, something you need to know about Matthew's gospel is that Matthew is purposely selective in what he shares about Jesus. And a lot of people, as they read the gospels, think that that's some sort of a scandal, as if the fact that we don't include every detail about Jesus' life that we would like to know uh, is something unusual. In fact, if you write a biography of anybody, you're going to have to select and choose the details that fit because you can't include all the details about anybody's life, never mind a life as magnificent as Jesus. And Matthew is selective in what he chooses to include. And one of the things that he selects out are those details that point out that Jesus is the ideal Israelite. He is the person who perfectly obeyed God where the nation of Israel didn't. You may remember, if you have ever been to Sunday school and heard about Moses, that Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why did they do that? because they disobeyed God and would not go into the land when God had brought them up to it. And God said, well, you'll spend the next 40 years then in judgment, living in the wilderness, wandering around until all the old generation of people who came out as slaves from Egypt died and their children then were unable to inherit the land. And so this is why Matthew specifies that Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, not simply because it's a historical fact, but because Jesus is recapturing and reliving some of the experiences of the nation of Israel. Earlier, he pointed out how Jesus had to flee to Egypt uh, with his family, and then out of Egypt, he came back to the nation of Israel, just like the nation of Israel went down to Egypt to save their lives, and then out of Egypt, they were called by God to go back to the land. Um, 
And one of the areas, one of the significant tests that the people of Israel had while they were in the wilderness is that because it's not an agricultural area, there's not a lot to eat. It's the desert. And so just a few days out of Egypt, they are saying to Moses, Oh, Moses, we made a mistake. Take us back to Egypt. Because there we ate leeks and garlic and cucumbers and sat around pots of meat. We were slaves there, but we had plenty of food. And so the first test that Jesus encountered is one with reference to food. Jesus was a real man. He was the son of God. He is really and fully and completely God. But he was a real man. And so he got hungry. In fact, the text says that after 40 days and 40 nights without food, he was hungry. I bet he wanted a snack, <laughs> at least, right? If it's been four hours, you know, I mean, I don't know about you at your house, but when I get home from church on Sunday afternoon, I, I want to put in my mouth anything that isn't red hot or nailed down, okay? We have a lasagna baking in our oven right now. Karen pulled it out of the freezer this morning. So that when we got home, we would have something to eat. It's only been four hours since we last ate. It's been 40 days since Jesus last ate. And the devil comes along and he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, reveal yourself. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus could surely do that. It was by the word of God the heavens were made. And it's no accident that John calls Jesus the word of God. So this is no big deal. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. By every word that comes from the mouth of God. The test is, Jesus, use your power to benefit yourself. Satisfy your body. And Jesus remembers that though God made the body, its desires are not necessarily paramount. God's will is. A lot of us get that confused. We think that if I have a desire with my body, I have to satisfy it. Well, what's more important is obeying God's will. Adam and Eve, if you'll remember, rationalized eating the fruit because it was what? Good for food. In fact, that's one of the reasons that she gave for eating it. When she saw that it was what? Good for food. And she went, well, I'm kind of hungry, and I know God has forbidden this, but hey, it's good for food. Jesus said, I'm not going to provide for my needs in a way that God forbids. Far better to starve to death and obey God than to meet your body's needs and be starved of a relationship with God. Amen? And so the devil has another test. Okay, even though you're hungry, you won't feed yourself outside of the will of God. It takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. What the pinnacle of the temple is, there were, this, there were these porticos and walls that went all the way around the outside of the temple. And one of them, and the, and the temple itself was built on a tall hilltop. 
there in the center of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount is still there, but uh, of course it's occupied by a mosque today. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is built on top of the Temple Mount. Uh, one day it will be destroyed and the temple rebuilt, I believe. But in any case, in, in Jesus' day, the temple still stood. And the southeast corner of it uh, was called the pinnacle of the temple. It was the highest point above the, above, the, above the ground. It was about 300 feet from the top of that wall to the Kidron Valley floor below. In other words, if you fall off of this, it's going to be a great ride for about a second and a half before impact. Because it's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden deceleration at the end. And so if Jesus would survive this miraculously or be unharmed in any way, then obviously that would be a fantastic demonstration of power. That he was and is the Son of God. Houdini couldn't do that one jump off of a 300-foot-tall precipice, fall 30 stories, and walk away unscathed. And so Satan says, look, show yourself, reveal yourself to be the Son of God. Do something dramatic that nobody can refute. And here's the thing. He, Satan, just as he did with Eve, twists God's word. He takes the words of the psalmist and he twists them and says, hey, don't you remember what the psalmist said? He will command his angels concerning you and he'll be, they'll bear you up so that you don't get hurt. And Jesus said, the scripture also says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, it's not that God is not capable of passing a test, it's that you don't presume on his grace and mercy. Even if you are the son of God, you don't do that. And he refutes Satan's twisting of the scripture with the scripture, with God's word. Whereas Eve had misquoted what God said and twisted it around, and Satan twisted it further to where now it now seemed like a good idea to disobey God's word. Jesus makes it clear that no, the standard is you obey God. Finally, there's one more test. And you, he's, Jesus has shown all the world's kingdoms. I don't know how this, how this happened exactly. But all the glory of all the kingdoms of the world are revealed to Jesus, and, and Satan essentially makes the offer, I'm the ruler of this world, and he is. And I can make sure that you have the crown without the cross, because Jesus is going to be king of this world one day. He says, I can give it to you. I can give you the crown without the cross. You don't have to do that. And it must have been incredibly tempting. Try to imagine this. Try to imagine not only being the wealthiest, but also the most powerful person in all the world. You know, we joke about, you know, what would you do if you ever won a million dollars, you know? If you had a million dollars, what would you do? You know, well, first of all, a million dollars is not nearly as much as it used to be, <laughs> particularly nowadays uh, when Uncle Sam would take about a 60% bite out of that. But never mind that. Let's say you had, you had a gazillion dollars. 
<laughs> you know, you have all the money in the world, you reign over the entire planet, and all you've got to do, all you've got to do, Satan says, is just bow down and worship me. It doesn't have to be like big extravagant worship. You just have to acknowledge me as superior and supreme. And I'll give it all to you. And it must have been incredibly tempting. In fact, it's a real temptation. Jesus is fully God, but he's fully human. And so it was a real temptation. Jesus is not working with a net here. But he decides that he would rather obey God than sinfully rebel against God and be independent of him. And so where Adam and Eve failed these tests, first to satisfy your body and then to satisfy your eyes and then to satisfy your prideful desire to be independent of God, Jesus passes every one and does so in the power, with the power of God's word. Whereas Eve and Adam rejected God's word, and when the serpent came along with, as John calls them, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, three major sins, categories of sin that we all fall victim to and pray to, Jesus passes the test in every case with flying colors. And here's the thing, and this is why this is important, because you and I not only face the same kinds of temptations, but we can also have victory in the exact same way. Because Jesus at the cross defeated sin. And so sin no longer has to have any power over you and me. Jesus put sin to death. And here's the thing. Only a perfect man could die as a substitute for human beings. And only God could ensure that that perfect man's death has sufficient value to cover not just one person, but every person. And so Jesus died and had to die just like we have to die as the penalty for sin, but he didn't die for his own sin, but for ours, for yours and mine. And by resisting the temptation to sin when it was given, uh, where we gave in, he reveals himself to be perfect. And in his death, he puts to death sin itself so that it no longer has power over you and over me if we believe in him and follow him. So let me ask you, What temptations are you prone to? What sins are you giving into? Are you prone to the lust of the flesh? To giving into what your body says it wants, regardless of what God says? Maybe it's the lust of the eyes to have what you see and want regardless of what God says. Or maybe it's the pride of life 
a desire to be independent of God and to rule your life as your own God, worshiping and serving yourself and have everybody else in your life do the same. Whatever the situation is, regardless of the sin, Jesus has conquered them all at the cross. And if you want to be free from sin, you simply have to trust in him, the only person who has ever had victory, to also give victory. So let me ask you, are you going to find victory today? Since Jesus was victorious, you can be victorious. Simply by trusting in him. But Jesus didn't, also, didn't simply gain victory over sin for himself. Um, and for us, he was also the victor over Satan. And I want to show you a couple of passages that highlight that for us. Um, first of all, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. Go over a few pages there in Matthew Matthew 12:22 to 32 Then a demon demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of David But when the Pharisees heard it they said it is only by Beelzebul the prince of demons that this man casts out demons knowing their thoughts he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now, let me point this out make sure everybody knows this. Uh, I don't know what you believe about demons, but the Bible says that they are very real and very evil, and I believe what the Bible teaches. And on top of that, a lot of people think that the Bible explains disease as demonic. You know, when somebody has epileptic or, or whatever, well, that's, the Bible says, well, that's demon possession. The Bible does not make that equivalence. The Bible does not say that all disease is demonic in origin. But the Bible does say that some diseases and some manifestations in particular people's lives have a demonic cause. And this man is deaf and mute because of the oppression of a demon in his life. And one of the significant aspects of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons who were oppressing people. He cast out demons on virtually every one of the recorded days of his ministry that we have. Uh, we have in the Bible a whole lot of information about Jesus recorded. Uh, we have, I think, of his entire life approximately 53 days about which things are written. And on virtually every one of those days, he's casting out demons. 
He did it to demonstrate his authority and to reveal his identity as the true Messiah. And his enemies couldn't deny that that's what he was doing. They witnessed it happen right in front of their eyes on many, many, many occasions. And so what they sought to do instead was to explain what he was doing and how this was happening. Because everybody could see that it happened, but how was what they sought to try to come up with an an explanation of. Because they did not want to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And so the one of the explanations they came up with is, well, it's because it's by the power of Satan that you are driving out the demons. And Jesus comes up with some responses. First one is this. He says, "Look, no kingdom can stand when it's internally divided. Families or houses, as Jesus term here, don't last if they don't stick together." Neither do families or nations. And Satan has a kingdom. And if his own demons are being driven out, then his kingdom is diminishing, not expanding, which is hardly a recipe for success. And second, Jesus asks, look, if my power to drive out demons comes from Satan, where does yours come from? In other words, it's, if it's true, and it is, that only by the power of God can a person cast out a demon, and, they're, and they are able to cast out demons by the power of God, then it's also true that the ones Jesus casts out are being cast out by the power of God. And finally, Jesus gives this great illustration. Uh, if you're going to rob... A strong man's house. You know, like if you see Tom Saxton there in the back. Okay. Tom is big and he is strong. And if you're going to rob Tom's house, you better bring a lunch. <laughs> okay. You're going to be there a while. <laughs> All right. Because you're going to have your hands full dealing with him. Right. And Jesus says, look, Satan is like a strong man who guards his possessions, human beings that he oppresses. And if you're going to rob him, you're going to have to first deal with the strong man. And Satan, and he says, look here, Satan is the strong man. I'm the one who comes in to tie him up so that I can take everything out of his house. I'm the one who is the rescuer. I'm the one robbing Satan of all that he has pressed and stole. And the thing is, is that the problem here is that his opponents are engaged in what Jesus calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They refuse to recognize Jesus as operating by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus says they can't be forgiven, not because because their sin is too great, but because their refusal prevents it. But Jesus has come to rob Satan's kingdom of all who have fallen under his sway because Jesus is the victor over Satan. 
And Paul makes, has another passage where he makes the same point in a slightly different way. If you go over to Colossians chapter 2, what you see there in verses 13 and 15. Are these words, this is what he says. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul says that when you're in sin, you're dead. You may not have faced eternal judgment yet, but it's only a matter of time. You're as good as judged and condemned. And you and Satan for eternity. But God made you alive by the same power with which he raised Jesus from the dead. And he granted you not only eternal life, but also forgiveness of all of your sins. All of them. All of your sins. And he canceled the debt that we owed for sin. How did he do that? By nailing the sin debt to the cross with your sin. When, it, when Jesus was nailed there, so was your sin, so was your debt. And Jesus made you alive and free. He raised you from spiritual death. And you and me are clean. We aren't dead anymore. We're alive. And Jesus not only triumphed over your sin and set you free from it, he also triumphed over the demonic realm and put them to open shame. They thought that they had defeated God because they thought that it was essential that Jesus not go to the cross if he was to be the Messiah. What they did not understand was that Jesus' whole plan the entire time was to go to the cross because unless there was the cross, God would have had to justly condemn every human being to hell. Without the cross, there is no salvation because God is fully just and sin has to be punished. So there had to be a payment made, but the demons worked with evil human beings to conspire to send Jesus to the cross and they thought that they had won. But God, in a reversal that they could not have imagined, used the very cross that they conspired to hang Jesus on as the instrument of victory over them. And so the demonic realm is humiliated and ashamed. For it was on the cross that Jesus paid the cost of human sin, and in the resurrection of Jesus reveals it to be fully paid just like Jesus said it was. His last words at the very end of his life, as he hung on the cross, before he breathed his last, he said, tetelestai, which is a Greek word meaning paid in full, finished, done, fully paid, your debt and mine, fully canceled, the demonic realm finally triumphed over and put to shame. And Jesus has indeed conquered the demonic realm. Christ has, is the victor, and he has robbed the strong man's house of all who are held captive by the dark Lord. If you are experiencing oppression by Satan, 
And I don't know that necessarily anybody in this room fits in this category. But if you are, if you are experiencing oppression by Satan, you can be free by the power of God. You can be free today. And he doesn't always enslave like he does in this, in this story we read in Matthew, where there's someone who has a physical manifestation. Sometimes it's, there's enslavement that's brought about by Satan's power through disease. Sometimes there's enslavement where someone is captured through witchcraft or seeking power from the spiritual realm. If you're a slave, you can be free in Jesus. Sometimes his cage is made of guilt, shame, fear. Jesus triumphed over Satan by the cross, and he has removed from you any reason for sin or guilt or shame, fear. You can be free because Jesus is the victor over Satan. I know I'm out of time, but I want to take you one more place. You got five minutes? hope so. This is worth it. All right. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. This is one of the greatest chapters in your Bible. You need to read this chapter and memorize it about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Verses 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Basically, you may have gotten confused there at the end, but basically this is what Paul is saying. That Adam, by his sin, purchased death for every human being. But Jesus, by his death, purchased for life for every human being. And Christ was raised first. And one day, at the end of all things, all who believe in Christ will receive our resurrection bodies at the coming of our Lord Jesus to establish his kingdom. And he will rule and he will reign. And every human government, every nation, every individual, every uh, being in the demonic realm who has existed to this point in a state of rebellion against God will be defeated. And then, finally, even death, the last enemy, is going to be defeated. Even death will be put to death, finally and fully, because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. 
And all things are going to be put in submission to God the Father. Even Jesus is going to, for eternity, place himself voluntarily, though he is equal, though he is fully divine, though he possesses all the same attributes as God, even Jesus is going to voluntarily submit himself to the reign and the rule of God the Father for all eternity so that there is no place in all the universe, not even within the Trinity, where God the Father's reign does not extend. Now, there is some stuff in this passage that is hard for me to get my head around. i got to be honest. But here's the thing. Sin and death and hell are going to be completely, totally, forever defeated because Jesus has won the victory. And if you're here today and you're wondering what to do with Jesus, I want you to know for sure before you leave that Jesus is the victor for you and for me. He conquers all of our enemies, all of our enemies. Even the last enemy, death, and the sin we do that separates us from God, the devil who leads us into sin and temptation and who seeks to dominate us and oppress us and to make our lives miserable, Jesus has conquered them all. And one day, all these enemies will be put to death because of the death of Jesus. So let me ask you, This is the king. This is the victor. Do you know him today? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do not have a weak Savior. We have the victor, Jesus Christ, who defeated sin who defeated Satan and the demonic realm and held them up to contempt through the cross, who one day will defeat death such that even death itself is turned backwards for us, that by the death of Christ you purchased men from every tribe and nation, tongue and people, And we will all stand around the throne enjoying the victory that Christ has won for us for all eternity. Father, I pray if there's anyone here, man or woman, boy or girl, who has never placed their trust in Christ the victor, who triumphed over everything that stands in the way of their relationship with you, Father, I pray that they would join the winning side they would follow Jesus with all their heart and life and experience the victory and freedom that comes from your son through faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.